0: for joining us for this podcast from the Arctic Institute. I'm Tom Fries, and for this interview, I spoke with Leanne Robinson over Skype. Leanne is an energy management specialist at the Arctic Energy Alliance, an organization in Canada's Northwest Territories that focuses on promoting renewable energy in the Canadian North. Leanne's work gives her great insight into the practical realities of renewable energy in the Arctic and into the enormous variation between different communities, assets and challenges. I started by asking Leanne for a general introduction to her work at the Arctic Energy Alliance and the landscape of renewable energy in the Canadian North.
1: Uh, My name is Leanne Robinson and I'm living in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories in Canada. We're at uh, about a 62 degree north latitude. Um, Yellowknife is a city of about 20,000 residents and we're 1,500-kilometer drive from anything that's larger than us. I'm working at the Arctic Energy Alliance. Uh, the Arctic Energy Alliance is a non-profit organization. Uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to promote energy efficiency and renewable energies in the Northwest Territories. So it's a group of about 15 to 20 people here. Um, Most of us are in Yellowknife, which is the capital city of Northwest Territories, but we do have four offices in in the other communities. Uh, Just as a background, the Northwest Territories has about 33 uh, communities and a lot of them are not accessible by road. A lot of them are fly in only or accessible by winter road only, which means um, accessible for about two months of the year by road. And so we're a group of engineers, people um, who have studied economics, people from the construction industry, builders, previous government workers. Um, There's a whole range of people uh, together and lots of uh, community organizers. So it's an interesting mix of people of technical, but also also being able to engage the community. Uh, we get most of our funding from government. It hasn't always been that way, um, but at the moment, we're getting most of our funding through the territorial and the federal government, um, but we also do consulting work. And so at the end of the day, we're still a non-profit organization, so the way that our consulting would work is that we do, we do work for other, other companies or communities, and then we would put that money back into different projects that we believe in. We've got 33 communities in the Northwest Territories. We're all considered off-grid, and half of the territory is working with uh, diesel electricity. So there's uh, there's some pretty dirty power up here, and there's there's just there's just so much potential to to change that. I mean, especially within the communities. Like when I'm talking about the communities, probably anything that's not larger than 3,000 people, which is which is most of the communities up here. They're very small. They're anywhere from Forty people to to Yellowknife, which is twenty thousand. But um, they people have been living on the land for quite a while in these communities, and there's just a there's just a deeper understanding of of the way that things could be and the way that things should be. And there's a lot of desire from the communities as well. So it's not it's not like you're working against the oil companies up here for sure. I mean, you are, but in a different sense.
0: That's interesting and a little surprising because, I mean, a a lot of the press that we read in the States would suggest that the economic development that comes with hydrocarbons in the form of employment and relatively inexpensive energy and so on um, makes that the more popular choice for a lot of northern communities.
1: Right. And Fair enough. and you know, if there was a lot of potential for economic development in in a lot of these places, then then that's true but but it's not happening in all of the communities. Uh,
0: when you think about the Arctic generally speaking as a consumer and a producer of renewable energy, wh- what do you see? like what kinds of production technologies are showing promise? where, uh, in what ways are renewable resources being used in the Arctic, both in the Northwest Territory specifically, obviously, and um, elsewhere? If you know about other regions,
1: uh, there's a there's a mix of technologies, and one of the one of the main ones that's coming through right now is biomass, and so uh, heating with wood or wood pellets. And so wood pellets are actually making a, a huge influx up here, which some people would argue um, is is either a good thing or a bad thing, and so people are are finding that heating with wood pellets is actually a lot cheaper than heating with oil. And we, our source is a lot closer. Um, we have sources which are, which are just over the border. We don't have anything in the Northwest Territories as of yet. Up here, heating is so much more important than, well, it's just a larger part of the load than electricity. Most of the renewable energies are focused on the electricity side of things. And so the heating side is actually something that's very, uh, very important as well. Um, Heating with electricity just doesn't happen up here. Uh, We're heating with mostly with fuel oil and a little bit of natural gas, a little bit of propane, and now getting into some residual heat. So that's, that's, that's a great thing. Another emerging technology is wind. Uh, Wind typically hasn't been uh, installed up here. We've done a couple of uh, small projects, and I think up until recently, the Yukon was the one that had the largest wind project, and it was only at 800 kilowatts, which is fairly significant. But considering in all of the three territories, that's the only wind that's installed. The reality is in in the center of the territory, there's not that much wind. Which is unfortunate it's uh you know where the people are there's just not the resource and so that's is there's potential for sure up north um but you know this the communities are small and access is extremely difficult it's all fly in and flying in winter winds is expensive and flying in a mechanic to fix them is even more expensive (laughs) But uh, recently, one of the large mines in the Northwest Territories, uh, Diavik, is looking at, seriously looking at, and have ordered, uh, four wind turbines with a combined capacity of 9.2 megawatts. So that's pretty exciting. Alaska's been using wind for quite a while, um, but uh, something in our own territory is, is really exciting and so um, I think all three territories will be looking very closely at what happens with this large wind project, and seeing what kind of issues they they might face with moving parts and the cold climate. You know, it's a it it changes things. It changes it changes technology for sure. Um, there's been a little bit of solar, w- with 24 hours of daylight in the summer and zero in the winter. It's uh, <laughs> It makes for a different, a different, uh, <laughs> a different production. It could never be used on its own. Yellowknife is actually looking at a geothermal project, but it's not, uh, it's not your classic geothermal. We're actually looking at using um, the heat from an abandoned mine, which is only a, a kilometer out of town, and using that as a, in a district heating system. So that's pretty exciting, and that's going to hopefully go through in the next uh, in the next couple of years. So I guess the one that's showing the most promise right now is is the biomass for the heating, just because of its uh, potential for replacing fuel oil.
0: Uh, could you, just because I don't know that much about biomass, can you explain to me sort of in layman's terms uh, how biomass works? Mm-hmm. What's the technology behind it?
1: It's a waste product from the lumber mills. And so when, when you're producing lumber, you actually only use about 50% of the wood. And so the rest of it, they're just... Um, they're chipping and then making into sawdust and pressurizing and making into wood pellets. And so it's, there's, no, there's no binders or anything. It's just, uh, it's just with pressure. And so now you've got a, a product which is 100% wood and it was, it was waste before. They used to burn it on site just to get rid of it, um, but they realized the potential of this. And, and so now they're, they're, they're making wood pellets which is basically just sawdust and they're shipping them to where, wherever. It's, uh, it's emerging in Europe a lot. We're selling most of our wood pellets over to Europe, but there's not really any reason why we need to be barging them across the, across the ocean. We should be using them them right here, really. Um, so for the moment, it's a waste product. Obviously, if, um, if people start using them a lot more, then you, it starts changing the story a little bit because now you're gonna have to start cutting wood to be able to use, to use wood pellets. And so people are using them on a res- residential scale but also on a on a larger commercial scale. And a lot of the properties in town are installing them just because it's so much cheaper than oil. They're not concerned about the environmental benefits which are enormous. Um they're just concerned on a cost basis and they're they're trucking up their own wood pellets and and they're 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 working brilliantly.
0: Yeah, it, uh, it looks like this is one of those unique cases where the renewable actually does have a cost advantage over the hydrocarbon.
1: It's true. It's true. And th- that's obviously working to our advantage. <laughs> uh,
0: what aspect of your own work with renewable energy in the Northwest Territories gives you the most trouble? Um, what's the most complicated and challenging issue that you have to deal with?
1: I guess as in anything, inertia is always working against you. People are pretty slow to change. Um, and so, you know, especially, especially on larger scales, like individuals are a lot quicker, I find. Individuals catch on a lot better. But um, in terms of whole governments changing, it's, it's, it's a slow process as, as it always is. I guess the other challenge is that uh, electricity is subsidized. So diesel electricity is subsidized. And if you're trying to put in solar or wind or, or anything else, it's not subsidized. You can get funding for it, but you're you're paying the actual cost of electricity, whereas we're not right now. Um, electricity is extremely expensive, um, but nobody's paying the true price. So in Yellowknife, we're paying 25 cents a kilowatt hour. In the rest of the communities, they're paying about 42, but the real cost in some of the communities is a $1.90 or $2 a kilowatt hour, um, but they're not paying that. And so if you're paying a fifth of what the actual cost is and you're putting in renewable energies, that the, the economics just don't, they're just not there for the pure sense that, you know, you're not actually paying the real cost of diesel. And so that's, that's a big challenge for sure. Um, there's also a little bit of a, a lack of capacity, which makes experimenting with renewable energies pretty difficult. And uh, I guess mostly just a, a technical capacity in, in smaller communities is always, is always a challenge. Um, and so there's training that goes on and whatnot. But if you've only got a one of system, then, then that makes it really, really difficult.
0: What does uh, financing look like for renewable energy projects? Um, who steps in to provide funding? What's the expected return on investment? Under what conditions? At what time horizon? Et cetera.
1: Sure. Well, the, the territorial government has actually been pretty great these last years, stepping in for funding for renewable energy product, projects. And they're really keen on getting a lot more in, which is, which is great. For, on small scale, uh, residents can get a third back of their, of their costs. Um, Cost being material uh, installation and shipping up to five thousand for homeowners or fifteen thousand for for businesses. And if it's a community project, then then a, up to half of the costs are covered up to fifty grand. Uh, the other thing is things <laughs> things are still really really expensive, and so it's it's still difficult to compete. Like as an example, putting in a in a solar project, and it's about it's coming in on a in a community where there's road access, it's coming in at $12 a watt for solar, and that's a lot higher than down south, for sure. We're not doing very much of it, so it it does cost a lot, and it's kind of like when solar was coming into play, you know, 10 years ago down south. The technology is pro- proven now we're still doing all the logistics of nobody knows how to do it correctly nobody knows what kind of regulations we need what's uh, how to work with the the power corporations and and that kind of stuff so so those things are all very expensive and it's expensive to to get people in there to do those things and it's it's so different for each community so that's obviously a big a big challenge you know if you're flying things in or if you're driving them in that that changes your your payback payback for solar is maybe well, 10 years, I guess, give or take 20 years. Um, wind is usually longer. Biomass can have a super short payback, um, but there's, there's so many variables that come into play for each community.
0: Uh, you've talked a lot about the logistical concerns that go along with renewable energy projects in your part of the world. Um, is, there, is there anything that you'd like to add to that?
1: Well, there's obviously shipping. Um, Shipping is always going to be expensive, no matter. I don't know if there's really that much we can do about that, but there's a there's developing supply chains as well, having things available um, in a lot of the communities, having wood pellets available and developing that supply chain. We're working with transportation companies and you know just get just get somebody to do it once and and to show that it is possible, or working with the the local stores to have them bring them up in their in their containers that are coming up already. So working with government as well to try to get them to pay for some of the initial costs that that are involved in 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 setting up supply chains and i guess a big one is climate and we're working really well at that uh changing the the climate you know we're burning lots of oil so we're we're warming up the the planet quickly so it takes away some of the technical uh, challenges but
0: (laughs) yeah what a what a thrill for you
1: obviously that's not really what uh, what the point is.
0: <laughs> How about the political landscape? What's the political landscape like both at the provincial and the federal level for you and where do you think it's going?
1: Uh, sure well this has been a it's been an interesting year for sure because we had a double election year so the territorial government changed over and the federal government changed over within the last year. So that makes uh, that was within six months actually. So there's no budgets that have been secured. We don't really know where things are going. Um, it's, it's really a question time right now. And what, what are gonna be the priorities of the territorial government? The federal government has told us that, uh, or has demonstrated that their priorities are not necessarily in energy or renewable energy. Um, territorial government, we, we hope, is gonna uh, tell us something different and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to continue this work in the future. Um, so the political landscape it's it's changing right now especially with the territorial government they haven't decided where their budgets are right now and so we're just we're just sitting anxiously and waiting but yeah I I I believe that the territorial government is definitely going to to still see energy as a priority they're subsidizing electricity rates at a huge rate I I can't imagine that they that they would think that this is the the cheapest way and the best way to do things so
0: yeah I mean I can well imagine although it is It's surprising, I mean, the seemingly common sense decisions that are made completely counter to what common sense would dictate.
1: Right, right. And there's also a few other uh, political stories that are that are in the makings right now, which is which is really interesting. We have two communities in the Northwest Territories that have used natural gas as their heating and electricity source. Um, both of them are coming off of natural gas. So one community, the community of Norman Wells, has known for quite a few years that, um, that they will be running out of, of their access to natural gas. So Norman Wells is an oil town, and the natural gas is the byproduct of the, the oil that's produced there. And so in the past, they've been able to use the natural gas that has been the byproduct uh, in their community. And so they've had a piped natural gas system and uh, they're using all of their appliances, clothes dryers, um, stoves, and then all of their heating appliances as well uh, from natural gas. And so they're gonna have to switch off because the the oil company actually needs the natural gas now because they're pressurizing their their oil and uh, bringing up more, they're getting closer to the bottom. And so as of next year, and the year after they're no longer going to to have that access to natural gas so now you've got a community that has to make an entire switch over and so it's it's obviously very politically laced and it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting case study what what does a community do when they when everybody has to switch over and uh, for sure. And we have a, another community, in New Vic, which has just recently received notice that their natural gas wells, they, they had natural gas wells, so it's a little bit different than Norman Wells. They, were, they actually are receiving their natural gas from, directly from the wells, but um, they've received notice very recently that that as of December, with 90% certainty, they won't have any left and so not only do they have to switch over the entire community but they need to do it really quickly and so this is going to be a it's going to be a very interesting thing to see what happens you know their their emergency plan is to fly everybody out of that community but flying 3,500 people out of a community is not really a very good uh, uh, plan so what can they get in there quickly and it's looking like um biomass might be the quickest thing that they can get in there even though there isn't any history of it they're having trouble with all of the the diesel options and so it's it'll be an interesting story to follow for sure
0: so yeah last question uh let's say it's 50 years in the future what would you need to see to say that your work had been successful
1: i guess the obvious answer would be that you know that I've had a direct uh, impact on reducing the greenhouse gas emissions of the Northwest Territories and that they're actually lower rather than higher than they were 50 years previous um, but I guess uh, but really I think uh, empowering people and, and and making them realize that they're not energy helpless and you can you can kind of produce your own energies I think would be would be a really great thing and even if just one person believes that what they're doing has an impact on on the rest of the world and yeah I think that would that would be great. Um, it's all about the little things and putting them all together to make something really big happen. and And so that would that would be I guess it's not very tangible, but you know knowing that you've had an impact on people would be
0: would be great. thanks for listening to this Arctic Institute podcast. The Arctic Institute is based in washington, d c. You'll find other interviews and new research on our website, thearcticinstitute.org. The music you've heard at either end of the interview is by the band Ghost and was downloaded and licensed under Creative Commons. For more information on this podcast or our other work, please send us an email. You'll find a link on our homepage.